Welcome everyone to Black Coffee and Theology. Hey everybody, welcome back to the pod. Hey, (laughs) so I'm excited for this particular conversation because Pastor Trey is on the pod. (laughs) And y'all, I am excited because you all know him from... New Living Translation, and Three Black Men. He's one of the black men on that pod. And, hey, this is going to be great. And we have this conversation around Dr. Mitzi Smith's Knowing More Than Is Good for One, a womanist interrogation of the Matthean Great Commission. And there was a lot in this conversation. It was so much that... A lot of it will be, won't be on this particular pod. We'll have the rest of it on Patreon. But hey, I'm excited for y'all to sit back and relax and get into our conversation. All right, everybody, welcome back to the pod. And uh, we have a special guest. It is the illustrious Trey Ferguson, Pastor Trey. Welcome, brother. Yeah, man, I'm here. I appreciate you calling me a special guest. I feel like I'm not a special guest. Like I'm, in, I'm in the logo on the on the on the podcast cover. Exactly. <laughs> it is one of the black men. Uh, <laughs> Thanks for being here. I appreciate you. Thank you for having me. It is an honor. I know. Um, And this is so interesting to have you in a different context uh, from our normal context. Uh, I miss Brother Sam (laughs) right now. Yeah. Um, Yeah, this feels an odd setup. Um, It does. (laughs) It truly does. But... uh, for the purposes of this podcast, uh, the first question I usually ask people is, what is important to you, Pastor Trey? <laughs> and uh, how do you show up in the world and how do, what's important and how people see you? Yeah, first and foremost, I, what is most important to me in the world and, and how I show up is, um, that of a lover, one one who loves, and that is most clearly manifested in the relationship that I share with my wife and my children, <laughs> uh, which is an offshoot of not subservient, but but an offshoot of uh, my relationship with God uh, as embodied in Jesus Christ, and that's kind of like the crux of who I am and what I do. Like everything stems from that. Anything I do professionally has to be rooted in that love. Anything that I do in ministry has to be rooted in that. Even like my joke and personality and everything is rooted in the love because that is like my authentic form of communication. You know, like even before we hit record on this, we're talking and I was like, man, I can't help but like sermonize and everything. Like my my default is is to hear things and I'm automatically processing it. And how how does this connect? How does this tell the story of love how can we share this with people um so that's it I, I love things sometimes to my own detriment like i love the university of miami hurricanes and that is not good for my health 
you understand? So <laughs> there's lots of times where uh, being and, and trying to embody love um, is, is bad for my personal health. And there are times I wish I could I, I could be less uh, wed to the idea of love because it it is, um, yeah man it's a roller coaster, but <laughs> in, in terms of what people ought to know about me, um, I, I've been embracing the idea of calling myself a creator, um, one who writes, who shares, um, who thinks publicly, uh, um, not just for not just to hear my own uh, thoughts and stuff, but I'm, I'm accepting the fact that sometimes what I have to share is edifying, that there are people who are blessed and who grow closer to God and grow closer to love uh, when I share certain things. And that's okay for me to admit. I'm learning to be okay with that. And that's that. I hope I answered the question. Did you I, did. did I you did. You did. I, I'll say this about you. I, what I love about you is that although you regularly play on Twitter and regularly, I mean, yeah. I mean, play, I think, and I think people can pick this up. You are really soft hearted deep down. You love people way more than is even evident on the outside. And I, I think that's how I experience you. You often make mistakes, but you are quick to try to repent. <laughs> right? They say often, like, you be tripping. But you <laughs> and, and I think that that's the, to me, that's the standard, right? Like it, I think that's what I respect about any man is their ability to say I blew it. And, um, and to make amends, right? This world is full, especially the Christian world is full of <laughs> every day we find out, <laughs> you know, we see, <laughs> we see on Twitter, just people doubling down on the donkey, as I like to say. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and uh, when pressed, they just keep doubling and doubling down. And what I love about you is you're quick to say, hey, yo, yo, whoa, 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 my bad. <laughs> <laughs> let me just get off the donkey <laughs> yep. and so i love i just love that about you and i i do respect you as a thinker as a creator um and in those spaces that you inhabit i think you are a lot smarter than people give you credit for um oh, wow. and and then a lot of times when people try and get into it with you, they often find that sharp wit. <laughs> like, whoa, <laughs> live wire. Yeah. <laughs> Zoinks. Um, but I, I truly respect you. Um, and I, I knew when I started uh, this spinoff that I wanted to have you on, I just, was undecided what could I muse about uh, in theology with my brother about. And then da, 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 when I was thinking about today's topic, which we will be talking about an essay from Mitzi Smith and uh, her collection uh, that she helped edit, um, Found God in Me. Y'all know I love this book. I found God in me. I'm an evangelist. Uh, for Mitzi Smith. Um, um, 
I knew, okay, yeah, let me bring uh, <laughs> Brother Trey on. Um, so yeah, so specifically, we're going to be talking about uh, Dr. Mitzi Smith's uh, essay, Knowing More Than Is Good For One, uh, A Womanist Interrogation of the Matthean Great Commission. And uh, so, yeah, let's get into it. <laughs> um, so I'm going to read the introduction uh, just as a way to kind of ground ourselves uh, in this talk uh, today. So um, the intro says, uh, the naming of Matthew 28, 19 through 20 as a great commission has had the impact of delimiting and orientating how readers should understand the passage and the entire gospel of Matthew. This act of labeling has constrained how we interpret that text that most readers find it difficult, if not impossible to read it and Matthew through any other hermeneutical framework. Um, and that's kind of the launching pad that Mitzi Smith kind of launches into this iconoclastic work by which she talks about um, the Great Commission and how uh, one can understand it, how people have classically, quote unquote, classically understood it. <laughs> and, <laughs> and that classically is kind of recent. Um, and she kind of makes that, that case. Um, and before we, we even go there, um, and this, this text is rich, um, yeah. this could be a whole class, but, um, maybe let's talk about how have you, um, maybe historically, or maybe in your upbringing understood, um, the end of Matthew 28 and that what has been labeled the Great Commission uh, before coming to this essay, maybe uh, what has been the teachings that you have had uh, on the Great Commission uh, as we jump into this combo. Yeah, coming up, particularly in evangelical spaces, and I know a lot of times we hear that word and we automatically go white evangelical, like MAGA folks and all of them, the January 6th crew. Um, but no, like even incorporating like black, the, the the black church is a largely evangelical space for the most part, right? Like not in the same way all the time, but often in many of the same ways. And in a lot of those spaces, the Great Commission is the ball game, you know, like that's that's what we're supposed to do. Uh, you know, you get baptized, you put on the jersey of Team Jesus, and then your, your job is going out and making disciples, baptizing the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And that's why we sit there and people go in there on their, on their uh, soul winning missions, and people uh, accept the invitation when the doors of the church are open and uh, take, say whatever sinner's prayer in the back room and, and we dunk them. And the more people we dunk, the more we celebrate, you know, uh, people will celebrate 65 people getting baptized in a month and all that stuff. And that's, that's really what it's all about. Um, we can all say that, go make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost, or the Holy Spirit, whatever your preferred nomenclature is. And when that becomes the core of, who you are um this emphasis is put on evangelism there's I, i've been in multiple 
uh, church settings where there is a dedicated evangelism team and there's evangelism classes where like, okay, like it's systematized to the point, this is a script that we follow when we are evangelizing. And yeah. say these words to these people, you wear these t-shirts, we give out these things so they know what the next step to do after we have successfully evangelized them is. And it's something that is to this very day still celebrated. Um, in, in many, and it's not exclusive to the black church, but particularly, I mean, obviously the evangelical church uh, prioritizes that. And sometimes it's just a, a, a game. I'm trying to, I can't even remember the name of, of the game, but it's, there was this old like computer game where like you try to conquer spaces and you change the color of the space. This is how many of these, like how, how many, uh, how much of this map can we dominate through our evangelism? Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Comes, even to the point of how some of our churches are run, right? Like the multi-site church thing is uh, our churches are many yeah. empires in some sense. Yeah. Like that's what successful evangelism looks like. Uh, we take that prayer of uh, Jabez another way when, when our territory is enlarged, we mean literally. Um, <laughs> and uh, that's how I, I say this now, and I'm not trying to be as critical as I might sound. I'm saying that objectively to describe my experience and my upbringing and coming in, even through a large part of my first seminary journey, uh, journey. Like this is what Christianity was largely based upon what this passage often called the Great Commission um, says to us or how we've interpreted this passage. Yeah. <sighs> preaching already and i want to start to dig into everything you just said brother <laughs> yeah i think same you know so in that great commission you know all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me yeah. and you know now i'm giving it to you you know go and do these things you know baptize the nations um teaching them to do all that i've commanded to you um i essentially was given the gospel of dominance um and this yeah. gospel of immediate dominance is kind of how i would describe it um the immediacy is what i was pressed upon me is the immediacy felt to me is is what was communicated to me it it wasn't just the dominance piece is kind of what you're alluding to in that empire type of game. It's the immediacy that I felt was my primary mission as a believer. Yeah. That it wasn't enough to um, take over the map. It was my job as a believer to join in this empire making immediately. And that if I wasn't doing it immediately, I was failing as a Christian. And, um, and I, and I was in some spaces um, and I cannot tell at all, but I, <laughs> I, I, hmm, I was in some spaces that I, I felt it was my mission, even in the, both in my immediate surroundings the government was was part of that dominance that I needed to immediately take it. It needed yeah. to be taken over for the gospel of Jesus Christ. Yeah. Um, it needed to be dominated immediately for Matthew 28. He, D, Jesus yeah. commanded. Um, 
And whew, when I look at January 6th, whew, um, yeah, but, man, they tried it. it yeah, but but now I, I see, though, when when taken in light of Matthew 28, it with that gospel of immediate dominance, it doesn't seem far-fetched to me. Because how could I not? One, it's what Jesus commanded me. There's darkness there, right? I need to baptize and teach. Um, I need to empire make. I need to instruct and inform. Yeah. Um, <laughs> that's not the way I'd be thinking now uh, for anyone listening to me. <laughs> I do not think that way. I think that's a, that is not the gospel I recognize for anyone <laughs> who's listening now. But I could see why one would think that. Um, and now that frightens me, right? Like that, that literally frightens me, but that's in answering my own question. That is a way that I, 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 there seemed to be, um, this way of understanding Jesus that was pressed upon me and that I was af afraid of the devil and, and I needed to, um, press the gospel upon people. So, um, yeah, I heard you could you mention like the the term and the idea of immediacy a bunch of Andrew, and and it's funny because like even in that essay, there's the um, Dr. Missy Smith quotes Dr. Katie Cannon a couple um on, on two particular terms that she had coined, and one of those terms was the missiologic of imminent parousia, right? This is this idea of um, Christ's imminent return, increasing the urgency of what we're doing here, particularly with regards to the Great Commission and particularly with regards to evangelism, which then puts the, the teaching and the, the disciple, the, the empire building um, above whatever consideration we need to give for the holistic salvation and well-being of our neighbors. It is more important that we convert them to our cause than it is that we liberate them from whatever forces are denigrating their quality and and fullness of life um yeah and and, that, and that's a paradigm that we often see uh uh echoed and and duplicated throughout many of our modern church spaces and modern church movements is that like yo as long as we get in bigger as long as we're growing then that is God's sign of approval for us, rather than as long as we are growing uh, healthier and more whole, you know? Yeah. Uh, yeah, and I'm glad that you brought that up because, you know, turning to the essay, like, you're you're absolutely right. Like those two terms that Katie Cannon has, that, that thinking about, um, yeah, that imminent return of Jesus, and in, in the connection to the Great Commission, you're right. When that when that becomes the the dominant um, missiologic understanding knit to the the Great Commission, a lot of things become okay when that kind of dominates the framework. When Jesus is coming, and that becomes the dominant lens by which you are converting people, baptizing people. Um, yeah you know what i'm saying like a lot of things become okay when that it becomes the framework by which you're doing things right like 
Um, go ahead. Here's the interesting thing about that. Like in order for us to accept that, that a lot of things become okay under that logic, we have to assume the best of the people who are spreading that idea. Like we yes. have to assume that they actually believe what they're saying, which I'm not so sure is the right thing to do. Like, yes, and, and brotherly and sisterliness. Yes, I, I believe you. I believe that you have the best intentions. Um, and I would have, I would literally have to assume the best intentions to give you that excuse. Because in reality, if we really believe that Jesus' return was imminent, the same man who said that like, yo, some of y'all are gonna be like, Lord, Lord, we did all this stuff in your name. And I'm gonna say, I never knew you. How in the world can you claim to be concerned about the salvation and winning the souls of all of these heathens across the world at the same time that you are beating, pillaging, raping, assaulting, dehumanizing them? That defies logic, right? So a lot of times our impulse is to say like, yeah, like, they use this and this justifies that when in reality it doesn't it, it only justifies that if we believe that they actually believe the things they were saying and not to do with something much more nefarious behind their use of of these things um so yeah. it's one of those situations where like man like I, I, the the lover in me wants to believe the best in you but the same book that says to love your neighbor says to be as uh, a wise as serpent but as wise as serpents but as harmless as does and, and and wisdom is telling me i shouldn't give give you that benefit of the doubt yeah and and it's and i think what is um interesting about that is you know what we believe about benefit of the doubt anyway uh, (laughs) a plug for three black men um paired with that uh missiologic understanding that katie kenna is bringing up she also brings up her second term which is uh, a theologic of racialized normativity. And that term is something she talks about is how European missionaries and imperial colonists claim that uh, God made black people naturally inferior and innately servile to whites, right? And so it was this understanding that blacks were naturally inferior to white people, right? And so yeah. that was uh, the understanding that these European missionaries had as they were going to convert people. And so right there, we can see if you, if missionaries have both of those terms um, and frameworks going out as they're going out into the mission field to convert people to Jesus. One, they have the immediacy, Jesus is coming back. So we, by any means, by any means necessary, yeah. uh, right? <laughs> by any means necessary, we got to convert these poor heathen souls that are inferior to me. Both of those are ticking time bombs, yep. right? Yeah. These are naturally inferior beings, and by any means necessary, and that opens the door for what you were just saying, for all types of abuses. Um, uh, to spring forth and in um, uh, let's flip through global history and church history uh, ding 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 that happened yeah. right <laughs> like we know the end of the story uh, <laughs> like hmm, did it happen yes yeah. <laughs> On multiple like, continents. Yeah. Like, I wonder what happened at the end of the movie. Uh, ding, ding, ding. Like, literally, we know how uh, missiological history went down. Uh, missionaries went forth with both of these two terms playing out. Um, 
a lot of tragedies happen, a lot of murders happen, uh, but uh, they people were converted in their souls. And yeah. which I think points back to uh, why Mitzi Smith, Mitzi Smith is even bringing up um, this essay in the first place. And as she's uh, probing one, I believe, I believe this is me. Um, is it even wise to call what this uh, commission, so-called commission, the great commission, right? And she's probing what's happening at the end of Matthew. Um, is that, are those even Jesus's last words? A lot of times, and I've found this, I don't know if you found this. If you even ask people, hey, y'all know we can take that heading out at the end of Matthew. People will feel violated. I've actually done this on, on Twitter. People will say, well, it's Jesus's last words. That's why we call it the Great Commission. Um, <laughs> which is always interesting to me. Um, and people will feel, because they've been taught their whole life that these were Jesus's literal last words on earth, and that is the greatest commission, usually because their pastor told them so. Um, yeah. It is the commission that he wanted in life for his disciples to obey. And it flows nicely. Um, <laughs> um, and it fits nicely into church history. Um, and there's no need to interrogate it because it just fits. Um, and so her point in the beginning is because it has been labeled this, it is delimiting and it makes it impossible for readers to orient or think through any type of thought aside from what has been classically taught to them. So do you have any thoughts around that? Yeah, one of my favorite things that Dr. Missy Smith does in this essay actually occurs near the beginning and it's in a footnote, right? So if you want to be people who <laughs> tends to skip footnotes, you, you tend to miss her that. footnotes be lit. And I've read other books by her. Her yeah. footnotes, she'd be having a whole nother book in her footnotes. Yes, like if you miss <laughs> like, no footnotes, you miss, but but near the matter of fact, I think it might be one of the like the first or the second footnote in the essay, but she offers what she deems other final or summary commissions, right? In each of the gospels, what are Jesus' last words in each of the gospels? And there's certainly some continuity, the idea of like, all right, like God sent me, now I'm sending y'all. Like that's a common thing among them. But one of my favorites is uh, that that she knows is John chapter 20. It's the only one of the gospels where Jesus' last words are, are not in the, uh, or his last words to the disciples are not in the last chapter of the book. They're, they're uh the, the penultimate chapter john chapter 20 verses 19 to 23 um but the words that jesus says his last words is peace be with you like from the new living translation as the father has sent me so i'm sending you receive the holy spirit if you forgive anyone's sins they're forgiven if you do not forgive them they are not forgiven right like that's that's the commission um that is shared in that context like with the disciples in that in that text so the idea that the great commission exists in matthew chapter 28 in those particular verses man, mind your business here um so the idea that, that uh those particular words are the great commission right like first and foremost the four gospels don't agree that those are the exact words or, or the, the exact context yes but the spirit of those words 
might be consistent among those. Like the idea that it's, oh no, teach them these commandments, baptize them, like that's not found in all four gospels. So it's a choice if you choose to make like those verses the great commission, like that is a choice, which is fine. Everybody makes choices, but we need to be honest about our choices, right? Like Mm -hmm. um, for me, part of my spiritual maturation and my, my, my maturing process in ministry is being able to own positions I hold based on choices, interpretive choices I've made. I can now sit at the table for somebody to be like, I see how you came to that conclusion. I made a different choice in my interpretation and therefore I've come to a different conclusion, but I see how you got there. That's why I believe that theology is often best done in community because like, yeah, there are biases that influence all of our choices. But to say that those verses in Matthew are the great commission, like that is an interpretive choice often a subconscious choice, often a choice that was made on our behalf long before we got to the table, a choice that we never questioned, but it is a choice, right? Um, So when it comes to like prioritizing that particular passage as the Great Commission, um, I feel like maturity demands that we interrogate, as she says in in the subtitle of this essay, like interrogate, like, yo, is that really the safest choice or is that the choice that that most closely honors the heart of Jesus is are we in dereliction of duty as disciples of Jesus if we make a different choice there because I'm not saying to crumple it up and throw it away in the trash but the idea that everything that we do needs to be built around this and part of the crux of her essay is that we have taken that scripture and as, as we are wont to do, as, as, as we often do pervert so many things, like we have neglected our obligations to do justice um, because that scripture does not overtly mention justice, even though Jesus's mode of teaching was one of embodying yes. justice and righteousness. Like he wasn't so much a didactic, like Jesus doesn't really have a whiteboard. Matter of fact, the closest time we, the closest thing we come to seeing Jesus teaching in front of a whiteboard, is when he starts drawing in the sand with the woman caught in issue uh, and, and, and woman caught in adultery. That's the closest we see. And in that, Jesus was teaching like, no, y'all are doing justice wrong, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, so the idea that like we take these verses devoid of all of the content, all of the twenty-seven and a half chapters that come before it, and this is the great. This is our job as Christians. In a way, it's relieved us of the charge, the command, the commission, if you will, to embody a different way of life. Yeah. And to instead to baptize our our penchant for domineering, because we don't need the Bible for that, right? Like we want to dominate regardless. Yeah. Um, but what the Bible does and what the Great Commission allows us to do is to sacralize our our inherent desire to dominate. Yeah. I love that. And and it would beg of the question she kind of makes this point later is is that Jesus even consistent with the Matthean Jesus right in general like is that understanding to what you're saying that is making that great commission the 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 focal point of what people have understood as the great commission is that even consistent with the Matthean Jesus, let alone trying to, you know, harmonize it with the other gospels, but even just with the Matthean Jesus is trying to sacralize it there. Is that even consistent with who the Matthean Jesus is? Um, I would say no. 
But that, you know, I, I think when looking at the totality of just the Matthean Jesus, I would say, no, that can't be his main point. Like, I, like if you're just looking at, okay, from Matthew beginning to end is, is the main focal point. Okay, now go, after all that I have been through the beginning of this thing, um, through the narrative of Matthew, I want you to Christianize everything. What are the implications of reimagining the Great Commission, period? Yeah, that's that's a dope question. And it's one of those questions that I feel personally um, involves a whole lot of imagineering, mm-hmm. which in all honesty, a faith with no imagination is a broken faith in our mind because it, it it is reliant upon us striving to get towards something that nobody's ever seen before, right? It's an, it's an ideal. So if we are to reimagine the Great Commission or evangelism or what this process of disciple making or baptizing people in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit or teaching them these things is, then we have to imagine. Matter of fact, let's, let's look at it just like teaching, right? Teaching, the idea of public education is a relatively young pursuit, right? Like it's only in the past couple hundred years that people have been like, yo, you know what we should do? We should educate the, the entire population. That's a very young idea. Education used to be a property of like the elite. You had to be able to afford to send your kids to study under a scholar. So the idea that like, we're gonna just educate everybody is still relatively new, which is why it's so raggedy half the time. Um, which is why like people are trying to get like standardized testing like oh what should we do with this like there's there's more than enough evidence to support the idea that homework doesn't actually help anybody right but we're still doing it because we're just like guessing and and things like that and there are people who are a lot smarter than this um they're a lot smarter than me in this area i should say um who've studied this who who are honest about the fact that like yo we still trying to figure some of this stuff out And part of what it's going to take to make a lot of this stuff worth any time for anybody or worth anything at all is going to be reimagining how we do teaching. Because the fact of the matter is that there's no such thing as a universal learning style. So standardized testing cannot work. It does not serve the population because people are not standardized in that way. I love that. So if we accept the fact that teaching people the commands of Jesus can't be the same for everybody. Like, sure, maybe you sitting down in a lecture hall, maybe you preaching a sermon is going to be enough to get it done for a couple of people. That's fine. I'm not here to knock that. But there's going to be a whole lot of people, a whole lot of different people who have different needs in terms of learning about this Jesus that you're proclaiming. Um, you're going to have to learn to, to, to embody that. And that's a lot of, a large part of what uh, Dr. Smith is saying in this essay is that like Jesus is God with us, God incarnate. So a lot of what he teaches about God is not based upon just what he says, but what he does and who he is. So if what we're teaching people is how to affirm and confirm and share creeds and confessions and catechisms and stuff like that, then we're not really being as holistic in spreading this gospel as we uh, purport to be, right? Um, So when we talk about reimagining that, it's okay, what can we do? And and it's funny, I I think it's so corny a lot of times, but the whole WWJD fad, um, I I, I don't know how helpful that is all the time because we don't know. We're just guessing a lot of times. But how is God 
best embodied in this situation? How is love best embodied in this situation? And sometimes it's not a matter of me speaking as one who holds the knowledge to somebody else who is devoid of knowledge and in need of what I have to offer. Sometimes it's a matter of entering into community with them, dialoguing, sharing questions, sitting in uncertainty, mm. right? Yeah. And if yeah. we're reimagining that, because one of the things that I'm most aggravated about that I inherited in my faith is this idea that we have all of the answers. Like that's an idea that I inherited um, in, in my faith from, from people shared with me. Yeah. And I'm, I'm, I'm not here to say that I have none of the answers. I, I believe I got a couple of them things, but is not my faith strengthened when I, when I acknowledge and sit in the areas where I do not know, yeah. when, where the best I have is, is, is a guess. And maybe being honest about the fact that like, yo, I'm not sure, but, but this is what I have to offer in, in my limited capacity. To me, that's a better testimony than showing up somewhere saying, this is the answer. This is how we're doing it. Only to come back 50 years later and realize he was dead wrong. Yeah. Yeah. I, I love that you said that. For me, the, the implications are massive because um, of your last point. Uh, when, I when I survey evangelism models and I sur survey missiological history I think and I don't want to be too broad um I think where not just the term the great commission but the spirit of understanding this um understanding the great commission in the way that it is even without the term it has to be gutted um because of what you just said um most um of what i have seen and surveyed has um with christians sharing their faith sharing their faith has has been predicated upon one having the answers sharing with the heathen who is um uh ensconced in darkness yeah. and there is an arrogance that is um in there you know in the words of yeah. fat joe COVID is in there um arrogance <laughs> is in there <laughs> god bless um when I believe that sharing my faith looks like me, the one encapsulated in life, sharing with you, the ignorant heathen, how can we share life together? Yeah. How can we share light together? How can we be in community or any type of meaningful dialogue? Furthermore, how can we live in society together? How can I want your highest good? What, do, what are the implications for that when, um, when we have to make political decisions, when I believe inherently that you're darkness? Yeah, yeah. What, do, what, meaning, what meaning does that have when I arise to political and real power over you, when mm. I believe that you are uh, encapsulated in darkness? 
um, I believe that you should be fearful. Um, most definitely. <laughs> if I think that you are less dignified than I am, um, yeah. you should be absolutely afraid of me. It's called Christian hegemony. <laughs> um, and with that hegemonic power, I will absolutely not look out for your highest good. Uh. Um, and so for me, it has to be gutted. Um, so um, I think what would it look like to your point if the teaching looked like how can we share life with one another? Mm. How can by us sitting together, I look at that whole teaching one another, what would it look like for Trey and I to sit down and say, come, let us reason together, together, yeah, side by side, not me <laughs> on the higher rung, <laughs> shooting down some stuff to the right. little heathen. <laughs> no, right. let us reason together. And by sharing and communing in life together, what if evangelism models look like that? Yes. Um, and by in that sharing of life together, um, communion happens that way and um, community happens in that way. And that sharing and that God life together, um, who knows what, what will happen? Um, I find a lot more spiritual dialogue happens that way. Um, my barber recently asked me, he was like, um, hey, uh, can I talk to you about God? Now, mind you, I have never talked to him about God once. <laughs> um, he was like, I don't know if this offends you, but can I talk about God? I'm like, say what you need to say, brother. <laughs> he was like, do you believe in God? <laughs> like, what do you believe about God? Um, now, mind you, I have never told this person anything. And this brother said, I, he starts to unfold some things and he's like, Hey, do you believe in God? And we started to talk about life, real life things. And this, this yes. brother also said, you should start a podcast, <laughs> I, which was so interesting. I've never talked to this person at all. And uh, which was, it, I find that by not being an arrogant jerk, that God life will happen. Um, and I even asked this person, why, why would you say that? And the and, uh, uh, homie said, I just think you have a lot of things that you could share with people. Um, mm. I didn't preach to that person one time. I didn't lead that person in a sinner's prayer. Um, I just mostly share, shared and am sharing life with that person. Um, yeah. And if we understood the Great Commission like that, I think a lot more people would want to get saved. <laughs> I don't know. I just... <laughs> Yeah, that's that's a, that's a true to life statement because at the end of the day, and I know there's people who will hear me say this and and they'll further browse up because they're like, oh, people are too concerned with being relevant, um, and then think of all that stuff. But one of the things I do, I never hide who I am, right? Like it's it's literally in my Twitter handles, like it's Pastor Trail Five, yeah. it's in my bio. Jesus is the first word in my bio, all that stuff. But like I am who I am. But at the end of the day, I'm also like a person, right? I have, yes. I have good days and bad days. I have a family. I have things that I care about. I have things that excite me, things that I enjoy doing and all those things. And that's one of the things I like to lead with, right? Yes. Um, so 
when I'm at like my my, my son's practice, right? Or I'm hanging out with the parents and, and, and they want to do X, Y, Z. I don't step into the scene as Pastor Trey, even though that's who I am. I step in there as another parent, like, oh man, let's let's see what's, what's going on today. And I step, and then as conversations happen organically, right? Like, man, I had a rough day at work today. Where you work at? I work at the post office. Like, okay, what do you do? Yeah, man, I work for Jesus. What? What is that like? Man, I had no idea. Because half the time I'd be out there frustrated about the same things as them you know like they, they don't put me on that same like one of the things very rarely will i ever be referred to as reverend it's, it's such an odd concept to me, right yeah. like want to be revered like no nah, that's not me and i won't ever like correct anybody if they call me that and you know official documents sometimes yeah like I'll, I'll put that there but at the same token what i feel has been more effective in my life with regards to evangelism and discipleship is entering into spaces on 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 just like where everybody's equal and they don't have to think of me as something otherly or, or something yes. else. And then, um, oh, wow, this is what you do. This is what you believe. Let's talk about that. And I've had some of the most fulfilling conversations imaginable, not mm-hmm. not as 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 RGA Ferguson, the third MDiv or, or or Reverend, like none of that stuff is, is, is me as a human being who happens to be informed on a couple of these things. Like I know a thing or two, I don't want to seem like I'm shooting from the hip. But when when I can show people how these beliefs and how who God is and who Jesus is inform my life and, and help shape my decisions and who I choose to be for my family and my friends, um, that's often a much more uh, successful, if not comforting place to enter in when it comes to sharing the good news and sharing the gospel uh, than me standing uh, from a place of authority or superiority and, and acting like I am the sole conveyor of knowledge in the situation. You better say that. Oh, all right. Mm. Well, I'll, I'll let you have the last word. Amen and amen. Hey, God. Hey, God. Mm. Black Coffee and Theology Pod is a production of Three Black Men, the podcast about theology, culture, and the world around us. Follow us on Twitter at Three Black Men. If you like the content that you are receiving here and want to receive more, whether that is in longer conversations, essays, devotions, and videos from either myself, Sam, or Trey, please sign up for for our Patreon at patreon.com slash three black men. Don't forget to like, rate, and review Black Coffee and Theology Pod as well as Three Black Men.